0: Welcome to part two of our exploration on curing meats. Last week, we did an episode with Christian Spinello about salami basics, basically how to cure and dry your own sausages. And this week, I'll be talking with meat scientist and professor at Drexel University, Bob Del Grasso, who is one of the greatest meat curing minds I know. Bob's a great guy. He and I are going to talk about whole cuts this time. So we're talking hams, we're talking duck breast, we're talking Lanzino, Bressaiola, that sort of thing. And this is actually a great way to get started in the dry curing business. So we're going to walk you through everything you need to know about safety, about nitrites, about how to age, about how to get the salt all the way to the center of the meat. Everything you want to know about getting started with your own dry cured meats. Hey Bob. Hey Hank. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I'm glad to have you on. Glad to be here. Well, I think this is a good follow up to last week's episode where uh, Christian Spinello and I talked about salami basics, and you know, I figured I might as well go to the master himself because I think Christian learned at least half of what he knows from you. Indeed. To talk about um, hold cuts, you know, uh, curing meats that you don't grind run through a grinder, right? And I think probably the the best way to start would be to let everybody know, well, who is Bob Del Grasso?
1: Well, uh, uh, who am I? I'm a a chef. I've been a chef since, uh, professional chef since 1981. Currently, I work at Drexel University as an instructor in the Culinary Arts and Food Sciences Program.
0: The Dragons. Yeah.
1: Prior to that, I was an instructor at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, and um, I also uh, have a smallish uh, consulting business where I do product development for <clears throat> various manufacturers. My largest client I cannot name, unfortunately, I've got a non-disclosure agreement with them. But uh, I, 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 you know, I develop mostly uh, meat products for uh, retail sale. I Gotcha. Yep.
0: How long have you been doing charcuterie and meat curing and such?
1: Well, since uh, about 1982, when I decided to, um, A, specialize in uh, French haute cuisine, and B, um, develop a subspecialty in charcuterie.
0: So how did you get started before school? So with a name like Del Grasso, I mean, I'm going to guess that you had you know, parents or grandparents that might have made salami from back in the old country. Well, kind of I, thing, indeed, right? indeed,
1: I did. My mother's parents and my father's parents were both from Italy. They were all from Italy. Most of the, the scratch cooking was done on my on the paternal side. Both my paternal grandfather and grandmother were excellent cooks. Um, in fact, my grandfather was a professional chef who um, worked for about 30 years um, as a uh, rotisseur at the Hotel Pierre in New York. And um, who um, was actually there in the opening brigade hired by uh, Auguste Scoffier.
0: Wow, yeah. that's a kind of, that's quite the pedigree. Yeah, there. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. In fact, I have a lovely group photo of the brigade in my office with uh, Escoffier slouched in a, in a chair. He was quite old at that point. in the front, of course, and uh, my grandfather standing in the back and you know in, in a row in the back. So, yeah, I mean, my grandfather uh, did cook at home and, you know, he made cheese and, and salami and wine and, and, and so did my grandmother. But when when I decided to get into uh, to cooking to become a professional chef, I went with uh, French haute cuisine because uh, that's what my grandfather did professionally. And I knew that the pay rate was going to be uh, was going to be higher for that. I mean, I wanted to go where the money was. And and. In 1982, that's where the money was. I mean, you didn't go into an Italian restaurant in those days, or uh, and, uh, you know, and there was no you know, new American cuisine to speak of uh, in those days.
0: Well, you know, in 82, that was the, the heyday of the Cirque, wasn't it?
1: Uh, indeed, it was. Indeed. It
0: was. In fact, I uh, my Le Cirque story is when I was a little kid. That's all I wanted for my birthday, right around that time period, and I ended up going there with my parents and. It was. I think it was the last year that Daniel Baloud was the chef there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I, to this day, I have never eaten at Le Cirque. Um, it's uh, regrettable, but never been there. I've eaten at uh, I've eaten at Daniel Baloud's restaurants a couple of times, but uh, never at Le Cirque. In fact, I, so, I cooked in in, in um, a Baloud's restaurant uh, one night in the uh, in the basement uh, where the, the catering uh, operation is, but uh, never eaten there.
0: Well, they do some really, really amazing charcuterie, as you might, Absolutely. As you might no. imagine. Absolutely.
1: Barb Balud is unbelievable. Yep.
0: I went to – I was invited, fortunately. It was an association with the Beard Awards in – I think it was in 2013. It was the Balud's 50th an- – or some major – I believe it was the 20th anniversary of Daniel yeah. opening. Yeah. And so Chef Balud threw this giant, giant party, and Holly and I were there and it's just, just huge scrum with all kinds of celebrities and everything and the ce- the the charcuterie pavilion yeah <laughs> basically what it, it was some of the most amazing stuff and and my favorite little moment out of it was i i am going back for seconds in the terrine and i nudged person to my left like dude you got to eat this terrine it's really good and Martha Stewart says yes i will try it <clears throat> <laughs> like whoa, hey, now.
1: <laughs> I, I have an, a, an amusing Daniel Balud anecdote. Um, I think it was the first year I was teaching at CIA. Um, they had a program where they would the school would pay to have you dine wherever you wanted to dine, uh, as long as you wrote about it. So uh, I opted to go to Danielle with my wife. You know, it was it was a great meal, but there was a lot about it that wasn't great. Um, I, I I thought the um, the service particularly uh, really ticked me off. The, the The waiters they all spoke French, and um, they basically ignored us because we weren't speaking French and we weren't anybody, you know. Anyway, long story short, I wrote up the experience for the school paper, and um, <laughs> a few weeks later one of my students comes to me and says, uh, Oh, you know, I, I, I staged at uh Danielle last weekend and I showed him your article. <laughs> and he blew his top. He said, Who is this Del Grosso? <laughs> he He went through the went through the roof.
0: <laughs> well, I don't doubt it. I mean I, that that service Brigade or brigade or however you want to say it is is legendary. In fact, uh Chandra Ram, I believe is one of of, of Plate Magazine. Yeah. She's really good friends with the first woman to ever do service at Denver. Yeah, right. And and yeah. and she's like in her 30s. Yeah, yeah. So I mean it's not like, you know, this happened in the 80s. I mean this happened in like the 2010s probably. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, uh, we were there in uh, I guess it was uh, 1994. And I I I'm sure that the Service has become more egalitarian. I mean, you can't, you just can't survive in New York uh, doing that sort of thing anymore. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm sure that it's, uh, it's become a lot more liberal.
0: So back to curing meats. Yeah. Um, I, I guess given your background, you know, you've got a, a, both a French and Italian background. Yes. If we were to point, uh, uh, someone who wanted to get into this hobby yeah. as a starting spot, where would you send them? For whole whole muscles. Uh,
1: what place would I send them to?
0: No. What project? Where should they start?
1: Oh, oh, oh! oh. Something very simple. Um, well, you know, uh, at, at Drexel, I I start my students on uh, duck breast, um, and and uh, this is not a muscle, of course, but egg yolks uh, for a simple demonstration of the principles involved in curing. The a, a cured egg yolk is absolutely uh, uh, brilliant.
0: That I, you know, I do those, but I, it's funny I don't even include those in the in the same brain space. But you're right, they yeah, are. Yeah.
1: yeah, I I I, I, want, I, I do uh, because all the principles are the same. I, you know, I, I tend to think uh, about cooking on a very fundamental level. I'm not uh, I'm not one of these people who are into recipes and names of recipes, and I I, I I'm very very much always cooking from. You know, fundamental physical uh, principles. You know, thermodynamics, and I, I don't want to go too far off, but
0: come on, come I on, you know it, you I love feel steak, Diane. The same
1: thing. Whether you're curing a, <laughs> a, <laughs> whether you're curing an egg, or you're curing a a, a duck breast, or a or a, uh, um, a piece of fish, you know, it's all about salt diffusion and water activity and protein quality and so on and so forth. So, but uh, yeah, an egg yolk is a great place to start.
0: And that's a good one. So I can basically walk a listener through that process in real time. (laughs) You take egg yolks, and I prefer to use uh, goose eggs in the spring because goose eggs are very, very large, and you separate the egg from the yolk, and then I put the yolks in a bed of fine sea salt. Yes. I like, it, I like it to be fine so that the angles of the crystals don't accidentally break the yolk. Yes, that's right. And so I nest them in there, yep. and then I cover them with more salt, yep. and I stick it in the yep. fridge for maybe three or four days, yep. maybe five for a big giant goose egg, mm-hmm. but you know, three days is good for a chicken egg. Mm-hmm. Then you take it out gently because it'll be solid but still super sticky. That's right. And then you, I gently brush off most of the salt but not all. Yes. And then I stick it in cheesecloth. And I make a little hobo sack out of it, and I hang it, and I hang it from one of the racks in the refrigerator, uh, you know, until I (laughs) really until I feel like using it.
1: Yeah, that 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 sounds that sounds great. Uh, Not exactly the way I do it, but um, a completely valid way to do it.
0: What what's your differences? I'd like to hear. Well,
1: so I don't use 100% salt. Hmm. I'll use anywhere from um, 40 to 50% sugar sugar behaves almost exactly the same way that salt does it'll dewater the yolk or meat depending on what food you're using and it will it, it will diffuse into the yolk and um lower the water activity just like just like salt does but it's not salty uh, because what i have found is that if i when i use all salt the yolk typically comes out too too salty
0: mm. See, I just grate it with a microplane over pasta anyway, and I use it like a Parmigiano-Reggiano oh, yeah. cheese. So, yeah. so salty is not a problem for what I, the way I use it. How do you use it besides grating it over pasta?
1: How have I used it? I've, I've whipped it into uh, mayonnaise. I have, uh, what did I use it for recently? Oh, I, I, I used it recently on an hors d'oeuvre where, gosh, I can't remember what the other element. Oh, yeah, yes, uh, sea scallop. Um, grated over a uh, warm sea scallop um, in an hors d'oeuvre. Use it as a seasoning. Yeah.
0: yeah, like Batarga. Yeah,
1: precisely. Just like botarga. Yeah.
0: For people who don't know what Batarga is, Batarga is basically the exact same thing done with the yeah, the uh, row sacks of fish that have very small row. So traditionally, mullet, uh, they do it with tuna. Tuna,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I've been doing it with shad row for many years. Yeah,
1: yeah, shad row is excellent.
0: So back to the duck breast. Yeah, yeah. So to my mind... There's two ways to do this. Well, there's probably more than that, but there's two main ways to do a duck or a goose prosciutto or duck bacon. I've seen it called as well. Mm. And that is the, my preference is to make it slow, super slow drying time and get that old funk that you get from really good aged charcuterie. But the, the easy way is the refrigerator way and maybe walk everybody through. If you're just, beginning you probably want to do the refrigerator method And so how would somebody do that
1: well so um as with all cured muscles you want the final salt content to be somewhere around three percent so you weigh the duck breast and, and let's assume that the duck breast weighs a thousand grams three percent of a thousand is uh, what 30 so
0: that's one hell of a duck breast because 454 well, grams is a uh, pound. I'm <laughs> thinking of
1: uh, the, the, the molar duck breasts, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's not unusual to have them that, that big. But um, all right, so let's bring it down to, uh, b- b- I don't know, g- give me a number.
0: Of uh, 500 grams. All right,
1: 500 grams. So 15 grams of, uh, of salt. Coarse salt, something like uh, diamond crystal kosher salt um, or of course, uh, coarse uh, sea salt. Rub the the breast with the salt. Throw it into a plastic bag. Put it into the refrigerator. Take it out a couple of times a day. Rub it, flip it, and then uh, you just you keep doing that until all the salt disappears. When all the salt disappears, um, you know, let's say after about five days, you uh, you're going to have about three percent, a little under three percent salt in the meat. It's not going to be evenly diffused through the meat. It's still going to have uh, at that point uh, most of the salt in the outer layers. But during the period of uh, aging uh, in the fridge, uh, that salt will diffuse evenly throughout the breast. Rinse the uh, rinse it, and then, so why rinse it? Uh, because you don't want um, a lot of salt clinging to the outside. Why not? Because it will become too salty on the outside. It's, it's just general, general practice when you're doing whole muscles, whether it's a duck breast or a ham or a, or a loin, it really doesn't matter. When you take the meat out of the salt, you rinse it. Because as the outside dries, that salt will just stay there. And when you finally harvest it, when it's ready, it's going to have too much salt, on the outside and when you eat that, if that is the first thing you taste, if that's the first part you bite into, it's too salty. Gotcha. Now, the, uh, that's uh, standard practice, but not often mentioned in, 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 in cookbooks about curing, but it's important.
0: What about vacuum sealing in that for initial salting stage?
1: What vacuum sealing gives you is a very even distribution of salt on the surface of the meat, and for that reason, it's a good idea. It's not required, and it does drive up the expense.
0: Most people who are doing this will, are, will be hunters who have va- uh, vacuum sealers anyway. Yeah, so.
1: yeah it's, it, it's actually a very good idea. What it, what it gives you is um, a little bit more latitude in the flipping and massaging phase. You don't have to do it quite as much. Because the salt will be very evenly distributed, whatever other curing ingredients you put in there, will be evenly distributed by the pressure of the vacuum bag against the uh, against the meat.
0: And you flip things like this, this is called overhauling, I guess is the, uh, is the technical yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. And you flip it just because of gravity, right?
1: Well, you're flipping it, yes, because of gravity. Uh, if uh, let, let's say you throw the you know the duck breast into a plastic bag with the salt and then you just leave it within a relatively short period of time, the juices that are drawn out uh, by the salt and and the salt itself will all be on the bottom of the bag and there'll be very little on top. Now you have a very high concentration of salt on the bottom and a low concentration of salt on the top, and you have the recipe for uh, a very unevenly cured piece of meat.
0: What about extra flavoring? So you salted the thing, and do you do you want any other kind of spices or, or whatnot in the initial salting, or does that come later?
1: Well, frankly, if the problem that you presented with me, the uh, question, was um, h- how to get somebody started, like what's a basic curing project, mm-hmm. and, and for that, I wouldn't use anything other than salt.
0: Not even pepper?
1: No, nothing. Purist. <laughs> well, uh,
0: I, I add pepper and thyme.
1: Uh, there's nothing wrong with adding pepper and there's nothing wrong with adding thyme, but if it's high quality meat, it really doesn't need anything other than salt. The salt that does the curing, it's the salt that will elevate it from, you know, raw to cured slash cooked. So for a beginner, someone with, pardon the expression, beginner's mind, salt mm-hmm. and meat.
0: So no sugar in this case. You no, want to put no, sugar no. in your uh,
1: no. I, okay. You know, or, or, like I said, I I think about all of these things on a very fundamental level. And you know, if you ask me, you know, what, what's the elements of curing? You know, what are the elements? Uh, I'm gonna break it down to um, a hygroscopic material that is uh, water soluble, salt, sugar, lye, and whatever the wh- whatever the product you want to cure is. Uh, you want to take it to the next step and and, you know, and and explore how the curing ingredients interact with one another and the meat and how that translates into flavor. Well, then we can combine salt and sugar or add pepper or whatever, you know, but one variable at a time when you're learning. you learn.
0: Got So now we're we've got it cured. Now we need to age it.
1: Right. So you've rinsed it. You've rinsed the duck breast. And um you have a few options here. You can put it in a cheesecloth and hang it from a rack in the fridge. You can put it on a um on a wire rack and um uh, le- you know in a tray and leave it open. Just as long as the air is uh, circulating around it freely and it's not in the coldest part of the refrigerator. You don't want it really want it on the bottom um where the coldest air is or in front of a fan. Uh you should be good to go. Yeah. At
0: least a week, right?
1: Yes, at least Knowing when to take it down, there is no, in the absence of instruments to measure things like water activity and pH, there is no way to really nail down when you should take it down and taste it. Um, It's kind of something that you have to learn by.
0: It's the force.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean in the last week's episode uh, I was talking to christian and i and I admitted publicly that I have never ever weighed any sort of salami or right. or cultured thing and I just I use the force yeah. and it's and, and it works uh, but the standard thing that everybody talks about is a thirty percent loss by weight yeah, so maybe weight, maybe you weigh your five hundred gram duck breast in this example and when it loses thirty percent, then you might be good to go but that's again it's just it's all personal
1: preference. That's right. Precisely. If you let it go a lot more than thirty percent, and I've seen that, you know, I've seen forty percent. Something like a duck breast is going to become like jerky. It's going to get really hard and um, be extremely chewy, and you might like that, but I don't. Uh, Thirty percent is a good a good uh, rule of thumb.
0: There's another fun. I mean, this is a a, a, we all make mistakes, and I let. And this is a different thing, but it's a. it's similar in its net effect i let a uh, a deer Bressaiola sit for like a year <laughs> and and it became you know a piece of igneous rock yeah. and the coolest thing though is now i can use my microplane grater which if if you don't know what a microplane grater is it's the super sharp super fine graters that you can buy on amazon yes, or wherever and yeah every chef in the country uses them all the time and they're just much more sophisticated than a standard grater that you would buy in a supermarket. But what I do is I use that igneous rock deer bresaola in the same way that I would have used the egg yolk.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you grate it over pasta and it's pretty cool. I do
1: that too. I have a, a ham that uh, Nick uh, Heckett gave me a few years ago and um, it, is, it is like uh, a rock and I, 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 it's delicious and I, I use it for Exactly the same purpose. And so years ago, I, I made some ham, air-dried hams from uh, lamb. And um, I aged them for about 12 months before I tried to sell them. At the time I was working on Hendricks Farms in Telford as the uh, whole animal butchery charcutier uh, chef. And the hams had aged for so long, you gotta realize these are Skin. They're, they're skinned and they're very small. Right. They're very small. Yeah.
0: I have a recipe for uh, a deer ham on my website for it's based off that that Italian preparation called mochida. Uh-huh. And it's the very it's very, very similar.
1: Well, so these um these hams developed a um a really interesting flavor profile. Very much like an old cheese. If you if you closed your eyes and you smelled them, they would smell like roquefort. Uh, anyway, I, I nobody I couldn't sell it. I couldn't.
0: It's that same smell you get if if you've ever had two month old dry aged beef. It's a very similar aroma. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 wonderful. I I couldn't sell it. The customers weren't interested. And and I don't know, one day the the the, the farmer uh, told me that he'd given one, given one of the hams to uh, just one of his chef friends, and the chef friend said that it was horrible that he, 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 he roasted it, and it was dreadful. <laughs> ah, why would you... Oh, <laughs> yeah, he was a chef, right? So <laughs> hey, anyway, I, I ended up uh, having been invited to the Culinary Institute uh, to do a demonstration, and um, I, uh, I brought some, and uh, the uh, the people in the audience just raved about it, you know, so it was, what are you going to do? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the,
0: so, yeah. Similarly, the market for two-month-old dry-aged beef is very small, yeah. but the people who like that flavor like yeah, it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, And and that actually brings brings us to the way I do a duck or a goose prosciutto, and and that is I'll age it for a solid three months or more. And the only way that I can get away with doing that is by very precise manipulation of the humidity. I, I keep it up at ninety percent right. for a solid couple of right. weeks. And then I kick it down just five percent a week until it hits sixty-five, and then then it'll sit for a bit. But that's that. It's again, I'm I'm reaching towards that, not quite the blue cheese funk, but there's a. If you've ever had really good charcuterie, there's a particular skunkiness about it a little bit, and you know, and I use that in a in a in a good way.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, well, you don't get from that cleaner chef-made stuff that just sits in a walk-in for two months.
1: We tend to think of meat that's hanging in an aging room as as being dead, uh, and I guess it is, but there are still in that meat there are still enzymes from the animal you know these are these are native enzymes that are in there very slowly because again you have removed a lot of the water and and, and enzymes need water in order to be efficient very slowly, breaking down the proteins into amino acids and um and the amino acids are recombining into into aromatic compounds that are very different from what is found in the original meat.
0: Let's say you, you kept your duck breast for a month. Yeah. You're probably going to notice that there's a line around the edge of the meat when you slice it that's a little darker than the center. Yes. And it's, uh, you know, so talk about case hardening with whole muscle. Yeah, well, this
1: is a and, and how very to common it. problem. It's something I see all the time yeah. in, in amateur uh, charcuterie, um, rarely in professional level stuff. If you don't keep the, uh, the the humidity in the aging chamber relatively high, no matter how long you hang the meat, you're going to end up with with some degree of, of what we call case hardening, and that is just meat on the outside that is on the perimeter or the periphery that is uh, it's very dark, very tough, and too dry. Better not to have it in the first place and to make sure that you maintain the right humidity, but if you do get it, the way to deal with it is to dampen it. Depending on how how much there is, you can you can wrap the meat in a clean, preferably sterile, damp cheesecloth. Put it in a bag. And just let it sit until it softens up. Um, I've done that many times. And, or uh, if you have a vacuum sealer.
0: Yep, I was just going to say the vac vacay.
1: Yeah, just just vacuum it. Uh, if it's really dry, dampen some gauze and uh, put it in the bag with the uh, with the meat. It doesn't have to be a lot, you know, just dampen it and throw it in there just to put some humidity in the bag and then vacuum it. But if it's just a little bit and the meat is not bone dry, you can just vacuum it and let it sit until it softens up.
0: Yeah, that's a good trick for everyone to remember is that you're going to, unless you're really, really good, you're going to get a little bit. of Absolutely. It. If you get too much of it, you've destroyed your, your, your meat. Yes. Because what happens if you get too much of it the that dryness becomes a physical barrier to moisture loss and the interior of your meat will actually rot that's right a duck breast is a really good starter another one that's very easy for people to work with would be either a lonzino or a bresaola which a lonzino or it has a bunch of names it's it's loin so yeah. it would be venison backstrap or pork loin right. uh, or something like that and then a Iola is also very similar except it's typically done with an eye round in a beef or an elk in our case, or a moose. Uh, you could do it with the the eye round of a of a really big deer. And and for those of you who don't know which the eye round is, it's that uh, backstrap looking whole muscle that's buried within the hind leg. It's uh it's easy to find if you are doing seam butchery. If you're if you butcher hind legs the way I do, which is to say, take each muscle group out of the of the hind leg in and of itself, you'll find one that looks like a little teeny stretch of backstrap. And that one is the eye round, but but both loin and eye round are easily obtainable in, in supermarkets, which is why I wanted to go to them next.
1: Indeed. In fact, in supermarkets, they uh, often market eye round steaks as uh, faux tenderloin.
0: <laughs> yeah, I call it I call it the fake tenderloin. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's so different from tenderloin, but but you know what? It, it, when you when you pull it out of the pull it out of a leg and squint. It doesn't look that different from a, a tenderloin that has the, the head taken off.
0: It eats different.
1: Oh, very different. Very different.
0: So these are also uh, whole cured things, and, and they follow the same structure as the duck breast. But what would be – would you give someone a different set of a device for these? Or I, I get the sense that you can't really cure them in a fridge or dry them in a fridge. Well,
1: it really. depends on how big your fridge is, you know. I mean – the the uh the uh the a- the commercial aging boxes that are sold by companies like oh gosh no I'm throwing a blank on the name of the companies that build these things um enviro enviro pack
0: sure oh. but how many people listening to this are actually going to buy one no
1: no no but my point is simply that these things uh, during the aging phase are nothing more than sophisticated refrigerators they're kept cold they they have to be kept cold for food safety reasons they're not. The prosciutto the that you buy in the, in, at Costco, uh, they, these were not hung in somebody's attic. They, they, are, they are dried in, in very large uh, refrigerated uh, buildings <laughs> that are humidity controlled. The same thing with dry-aged meat.
0: That is actually, that's a really good point. I mean, so the, the, the temperature range that most of us do at home or, you know, in the traditional style is somewhere between really 50 and I've seen as high as 65, right. but normally you see 50 and 60. Yeah. But, you know, our friend Craig Deal, who's a great chef who makes great charcuterie, at least in, in my opinion, yes, does. he uh, because of what you just mentioned of, you, you know, food safety requirements, he has to age lower somewhere on the, on the order of 40 degrees.
1: That's right. It just takes longer. Yeah. and it's harder to maintain the humidity at that temperature. You have uh, uh, you have uh, you have to really push your, uh, your 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 humidification because the colder the air is, the less water it's going to hold.
0: That's a good point.
1: Yeah. So whether or not you can cure age, excuse me, a uh, bracala or a longino in a refrigerator it really depends on the size of your refrigerator. You're probably not going to want to do it in a typical home. Single door fridge.
0: Well, won't it be just too dry in there too?
1: Again, uh, you, you need to push the humidity. I I have a um, a refrigerator um, at home that I bought for aging.
0: Ah, I see. Okay, so this is a key point for people yeah. listening here. So both of us have the spare fridge. So I mean, yes. we're you know, when most people think like, oh, I'll dry it my fridge, it's next to the milk.
1: Yeah. No. 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 Uh, something as big as a, a loin, you do not want to put in the fridge next to the milk. Exactly. Uh, there's no way you're going to be able to control that um, effectively. But if you have a spare fridge, you can set it up with a humidifier and a humidistat and um, turn it down to 40 degrees or whatever and, and just keep pushing water into it.
0: Do you, do you have a, a sweet spot in your own work? You know, for me, it's fifty-five degrees, and then I start at ninety, and just, and I and I pay attention to the humidity and ratchet it down over time. That's that's what I do. That's what, do that's you do that's th- what I do
1: too. I, okay. Absolutely. So, for a, let's say um, somebody wants to do a, a long zine, a loin.
0: Yeah, let's take a a, a piece of venison backstrap yeah, about backstrap. a foot about a foot long. Yeah,
1: okay. I would I would hang that in a basement. I would. Um, Prior to hanging it, I would wrap it in cheesecloth. Not netting? Well, netting if you have it, but actually mm. both. And the cheesecloth is more to keep the uh, the mold off. Gotcha. Right. So you can net it, wrap it in cheesecloth because the basements are going to have a lot of uh, a lot of spores floating around. And there's probably no way to keep it off completely, but but cheesecloth will help, and it'll also allow air to uh, moisture to escape.
0: Some people stuff their their whole cuts like a backstrap or an eye round in a in a casing. I've never do that, but I hear a lot of people do.
1: And I have done that. Don't really like how it turned out because there's always places between the casing and the meat where there's air spaces and yeah. stuff grows in there, and it's just ugly and it's kind of pointless.
0: I agree. Yeah. <laughs> good. I'm glad you agree with yeah, me on yeah. that one because that one, that one can actually get like meatheads, you know, arguing with each yeah, other.
1: Yeah, no, I'm. I'm you get an argument from me. I, I, I think it's pointless. Yeah, but basements are a, a good place to hang provided that, you know, the, there's adequate air. You don't want the basement to be too still. If there's a window, maybe crack it or put a fan and always out of the light. You don't want to hang any meat where there's uh, indirect light. The light will ultraviolet light will, uh, rays will oxidize the, the fat and uh, it can become rancid and it's just, you know, not, I know on a back, uh, venison backstrap, you're not going to have much much fat to oxidize, but it'll also oxidize the proteins, which is not a good thing.
0: No. Uh, typically with these whole cuts, though, you, you will use a spice mix or an herb mix, in addition to just salt. Yeah, I mean, we're, I, I, we're
1: we're we're talking about something different now here. We're not talking yeah. about like you know, uh, uh, ur- curing you know like basic curing. And, um, uh, yeah, absolutely. You always want to shoot for final salt content of around three percent, no higher. Above three percent, you you start getting it starts to become way too salty. It's nasty. The uh, you can with with salami you can push the salt above. Three percent, but then you gotta you gotta mask the taste with something,
0: <laughs> or you cut it so thin you can read through it. Yeah,
1: um, co- commonly what's commonly used in salami to mask salt is uh, also in sausage is milk powder. Some people add use sugar. There are some seasonings that you can add that will dampen the the experience of salt. But in whole muscle cures, you can't really do that. So three percent, and then if you want to add some for the whole muscle uh with your your backstrap if you want to season it i i typically will you know black pepper juniper thyme uh clove allspice molasses these are all things that uh are very complementary to uh the flavor of all red meats not just venison and um how much you add well you know well, it's
0: tricky because how much is going to actually get into the meat? You know, a, a lot of it is just surface.
1: Well, with something like black pepper, in order to assure that you get some diffusion of the aroma in there, you have to use quite a bit and you got to grind it up. And um, same thing with, uh, with, with any of those, any spice, um, the aroma of black pepper, clove, uh, juniper, uh, these... The aromatic compounds in all of those are mostly fat soluble. So, again, you know, venison—you're going to have very, very little fat in the venison backstrap, which means you would really have to use quite a lot of black pepper. So, let's say um, you're going three percent by weight of the venison of black of uh, salt. I, I I would say maybe six percent, eight percent black pepper eight
0: that's a lot of black pepper that's essentially like rolling it like a uh pastrami uh
1: yeah 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 Uh, actually you know what uh let's forget percentages let's say you just want to like do it old school and guess what you just suggested is exactly right
0: you know, you see the old Molinari sausages. You know, they you know they'll have the pepper one, and it's completely cut covered covered in finely ground. Yeah, up. yeah, yeah.
1: Just forget, forget measurement. Don't wing it on the salt. You weigh the loin and, exactly, and, and you go three percent salt. But with the pepper, um, you can just crush up a bunch of black pepper and roll the thing in pepper. Same thing with the juniper berries. I wouldn't do that with clove. It's way too strong. <laughs>
0: I'd, I've done it with, um, with those mediums, you know, like a guajillo Mexican chili, and that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, 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 I wouldn't do it with uh, a- anything hotter. <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs>
0: unless you really like you
1: it. you got to be careful.
0: Hey, I want to talk with you about uh, the use of nitrates and starter cultures with whole meats. Okay. I've never used a starter culture ever with a whole muscle, yeah. uh, but I, do, I will use pink salt.
1: Absolutely. I I, I see no reason to use starter culture with a whole muscle unless you're going to inject it. If you're going to um, disperse the starter in brine, in water, excuse me, and then um, pump it into the muscle, okay. But but then the, the wisdom of air drying a piece of meat that you pumped is a little, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. People do it. Right. But it's a little bit counterintuitive. Just spreading the culture over the surface of the meat is pointless you'll get a little bit of uh, you'll you'll get a little bit of penetration a little bit of drop in ph on the surface but so what you know what, what you know what, what is that going to give you uh, well maybe i don't know i shouldn't speak, maybe maybe it's interesting i don't know might have might might make the the outside interestingly tangy
0: <laughs> but it's regardless it's not necessary you don't have to go by no i
1: don't think so i mean Again, when you're talking about the the aging of whole muscles, traditional aging of whole muscle, you're talking about a process of aging that is mostly carried out by enzymes that are naturally present in the meat, not bacteria, not fungus, but enzymes that are naturally present in the meat. So Adding bacteria? I'm not sure what the point of that is. I, 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 anyway.
0: But on, on pink salt.
1: But pink salt, that's a different story altogether. Pink salt does a couple of things that are interesting. Uh, one, it it suppresses the growth of, of uh, pathogens, uh, pathogenic agents like uh, uh, clostridium, botulinum, and, and uh, E. coli, and salmonella, and... Uh, you know stuff that can that can get in between the openings in the in the meat and, and cause problems and it also changes the flavor in a very characteristic way you
0: you get that hammy flavor
1: precisely yeah so uh
0: well, you could do a lawn, a backstrap or a eye round or a duck prosciutto with no pink salt
1: absolutely as long as you follow the the, the you know you know, sanitation procedure. There's no. It's not. It's not uh, necessary. Same thing with prosciutto di Parma, uh, prosciutto daniele, these uh, serrano ham. These things. These are whole muscle cures. They're actually many muscles and you know grouped together that are uh, almost never treated with uh, nitrite. Uh, not not traditionally anyway.
0: No. know the, the only hams that I know in Europe that are per, sort of traditionally done. With uh, the nitrites are the northern European smoked ones. That's right.
1: And when you, if you're going to smoke the ham, it's a, it's a very or any meat, it's a very good idea to add nitrite because you're you're putting the um you're you're putting the if it's a hot smoke, you're putting the meat into a warm box. And, and, right. And
0: with, with no air. <laughs> yeah, with no
1: air, exactly. And you basically uh, create it's an incubation chamber. It's, uh, it's it can be quite dangerous to, to not.
0: I want to I want to deal with smoking in another podcast, but yeah. uh, but I think um, let's sort of we've taken everything up a little bit of a here, little bit of a notch there and a little bit of a notch here, yep. and let's finish it with uh, a beginner's dried ham. So I mean we we've, we've both done hog hams, you know, mochida and, and deer hams, where you know it's got this you know leg sticking out and you're hanging it. Yep. That's a bit more technical than I want to get into yep. in this episode, yep. but let's say. I've got a big hind leg roast of a pig or, uh, or a deer or something, and I want to dry cure hammock. Walk me through that one.
1: Wow. Um, so we're talking about a...
0: Boneless roast.
1: A, bo- a boneless roast.
0: Yeah. So like a, you know something maybe a piece of a muscle that maybe, you know, like the, the rump or the sirloin or, you know, so a, a whole muscle, what would be a roast fresh, that I'd like to salt it down and, and age it in the chamber.
1: So we're we're basically back to uh, the uh, the duck breast question, but
0: but much much bigger, much
1: bigger, and um over with a longer uh, uh, curing and aging period. It's uh, but the process is the same. You you uh, you weigh the ham, you calculate how much salt, three percent. You rub the ham with the salt. You put it in a vacuum bag. Or you throw it into a plastic bag, and then you wait. You put it in the fridge. You take it out a couple of times a day, flip it, massage it, um, and then you, you, you wait for the salt to disappear. Once the salt is gone, um, gosh, um, what are we talking about now? Maybe two weeks?
0: Right. See, it's a lot longer. Yeah. And this is all in your refrigerator. Your regular fridge re- next to your, the milk.
1: Your, your fridge, yeah, absolutely. Once the salt is gone, uh, you rinse it off. But we're going to we're going to um, we're going to add a step, a resting period. Another term is burning off. Oh gosh. I can't remember the I can't remember the time.
0: What kind of Italian are you? Come <laughs> on, man. I know, I know. <laughs> but
1: I, I I sometimes my mouth gets ahead of me, you know, that's a problem. So, we're going to add a resting period before we hang the ham to dry. With big pieces of meat, it's it's very important that you um, after you rinse them that you you let them sit for a while before you hang them in the open air. Sit covered in in a um in high humidity. Um the you can you can achieve the high humidity by just putting the meat back into a plastic bag or you can put it into a special chamber or whatever, but you need to keep it damp during this resting period. The reason you need to keep it damp is you don't want the outside to dry off and create a, a hard layer before the salt in that outside layer has had a chance to diffuse all the way inside to the center of the meat. Typically, when you take a piece of meat out of uh, salt, um, as we're doing here, you have a high concentration of salt in the outside, slightly less and less and less as you go down to the core. You want to equalize that concentration before you hang it. Another term for this period is called the salt equalization period.
0: Right, that's how I know yeah, it. Yeah,
1: precisely. So, burning off, resting period, salt equalization.
0: A timeout,
1: basically. Timeout, precisely.
0: You put it in the corner of the fridge. Right. Don't let it talk to anybody else. Keep it
1: covered. <laughs> you don't have to massage it.
0: Let it contemplate what it has yeah,
1: done. Yeah, so something like a ham. Top round that weighs six or seven pounds, you're talking about five or six days rest.
0: After that week or two okay. sitting in the soil.
1: Precisely. Once the equalization period is over, then you hang it.
0: And now you know, if if I got a big old lump of meat, do I want to truss it like a roast and then hang it in cheesecloth or, or what? how would I you I would do use
1: it? A, for ease I would use a handbag. Handbag. Yeah, one of those cotton handbags. Those are nice, you know.
0: And you can get those at like Butcher and Packer and the Sausage Maker. Yeah, yeah, like that yeah.
1: I'm I'm not aware how um if they've um, reduced the number that you have to buy. I remember. I know. A-
0: <laughs> I know my my sausage netting. I bought it from the Sausage Maker yeah. years ago, yeah. and it's it's like the old joke that this the couple's been married so long they're on their second bottle of Tabasco.
1: Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs>
0: Let's just say uh, I mean I'll be I'll be 60 by the time I need another thing of uh, sausage netting.
1: <laughs> cotton, cotton handbags are perfect, and you know how to trust trust it.
0: That's what I've traditionally done is trust it.
1: Yeah, and I and, and I certainly do that too. But when i when I was doing these uh, hams commercially, um, I always use bags. I mean the trusting got to be ridiculous. Yeah, it's true. So,
0: now how long? All right, you put it in your chamber. Yep. And how long do you let it sit? I mean, this is this is the, the big, great art, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Well, I think I would use the thirty percent rule for this. Um, I most people have scale, so you weigh the once the resting period is over, you weigh the ham, write the number down somewhere, and then hang it until weight drops thirty percent, and then take a deep breath, slice it. <laughs> um,
0: so, you, would you say that this is the case where? Even if you normally use the Force, this is the case where you really do want to weigh it and write it down?
1: Well, this is the advice I'm giving to people, you know. Uh, this is the advice I'd give anybody who's just starting is to weigh it. Presumably, they don't have the Force, you know.
0: <laughs> it's true. You you have to get in touch with your inner Yeah, force, yeah. You know? No,
1: there are other, there are other tricks. Jedi, mm, you are a meat. There's a test you can use, and again, you know, it, this is something that really requires uh, a little bit of uh, understanding of the Force, but But uh, you're trying to judge how ready the thing is. You can get a wooden skewer. Oh yeah. And and poke and feel you know feel the skewer as it goes into the meat. Poke it right. You know, make sure it's clean. (laughs) Don't. (laughs) Why
0: would not stainless?
1: Oh well, because one of the things you want to do when you pull the skewer out is sniff it. If it's stainless. It's not going to come out with as much aroma on it. It's because the stainless is not porous. In gotcha. in, in in Italy, um, I, I'm pretty sure this is all over Europe. When they're one the the tool that they use to test big cuts of meat for how ready they are traditionally is a horse bone needle.
0: Oh yeah, I've seen those. And the
1: horsebone needle is ideal because I guess you could make it from any kind of bone, but horsebone is what they use traditionally because um, it's porous. Deer ribs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: I, you, I guess you have to turn it on something, you know, to, or whittle it. Whittle or
1: something. it, yeah, you whittle it. Um, if you're making it yourself, I don't know how they, I don't know how they're produced uh, uh, traditionally in in, uh, in in Europe, but I would imagine that they are turned. Anyway, so the bone needle is ideal because it's very rigid, it won't break, and uh, it's porous so that when you retract it, it comes out with the smell of of the meat. And by the smell, you can judge how ready it is. But of course...
0: That requires some Jedi
1: skills. That requires the force. Um, What doesn't require so much force, and I think there's a pun in here, I'm not not really (laughs) sure, is is judging how ready it is ready it is by how the skewer or needle feels as it's going through the flesh. If the meat is really not ready, it's going to be kind of soft inside. It's going to be wet. And, and you're going to be able to feel that as the needle goes in. It's going to feel different from the outside, you know. And I just remembered, if it's very unready, when you retract the needle, it's going to be damp the tip, yeah. the tip is going to be the end it's going to be damp
0: it's a set, it's effectively a, a a meat version of sticking a toothpick in a muffin
1: exactly exactly yep.
0: so the last thing before i let you go yep. is the eternal issue of mold so mold especially if you're going to age something for quite a while yeah. it, you know it happens yeah. i don't often get mold in my chamber for some reason sometimes i do sometimes you can play i don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also end up uh, drawing a lot of things that have been smoked, yep. and for whatever reason, things that have been smoked almost never develop any mold on them. At least in my in my experience,
1: I, I, I agree. I, I mean, I've seen it, but uh, at the farm, we produ- it was a dairy, and we had a, we produced a lot of cheese, and I, I used to hang the uh, the meat in the uh, in the same room um, where we put the cheese for aging, and um, I remember making bacon. Smoke bacon and hanging it in there, and within a week it was covered with green mold. I mean, it was profound. Weird. But of course, you're talking about a room that's designed for aging cheese.
0: For oh, cheese, yeah.
1: And um, and some of those cheeses were blue, so there was a heck of a lot of of mold in there.
0: So what? So I mean, everybody loves that little fine white mold, which I believe is penicillin. If I'm if I'm not if I'm not it's wrong, it's a species. Okay. And and then there's you know occasionally there's a fuzzier white mold and then there's green mold and then there's I've never seen blue mold on a salami but I have seen black mold oh, yeah. so no, no, no. so in in white mold I I generally tell people is like don't worry about it uh green mold I tell people to wipe off with a, a rag soaked in vinegar no. and black mold get on it fast or chuck yeah. it now what is is that generally accurate or how would you how would you modify that
1: well um. <sighs> First of all, uh, vinegar is not particularly helpful. Water is, works just as well. Um, in fact, vinegar is, uh, it actually encourages, uh, at least certain kinds of vinegar will actually encourage mold to grow because it contains sugar. It's food. Um, and the little bit of acid that's in there is not, not particularly helpful. So if someone doesn't have vinegar, I wouldn't worry about it. I would just use water. Now, green mold, uh, I agree. Just wash it off. Black mold, um, it depends. It depends on how much there is and and whether or not it has penetrated the surface. You kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Um, If there's just a little bit and it hasn't penetrated, I I would treat it the same way that I treat the green mold. I would just wash it off.
0: Yeah, that's what I do, because especially I tell people who have that uh, the spare fridge, yep. check on your salami or your dry cured meats like by opening the door every day just to look at yep. it, just to admire your work, yep. and what that does is give you a little airflow, yep. and you can catch nasty mold right when it starts.
1: Now, um, there's a, a really effective way of actually keeping mold from growing on the surface that is very easy to, to do, and... Um, I mean, clearly, you, you want to make sure that your aging box, if you have an aging box, um, is, uh, is sanitized. You know, before you put the meat in, uh, you, you, you want to like, clean it out with a, a solution of, uh, of bleach um, just to make sure that you've killed any uh, spores, especially bacteria that might be in there. If you can't do that, if you don't have a dedicated aging box hanging in a refrigerator or in a basement or in a kitchen or whatever, that, that, that's not an option. But what you can do is um, you, you make a 2.5% solution of sodium erythrobate and water. So to a liter of, uh, of water, you put 25 grams of, of sodium erythrobate, which you can buy from Butcher and Packer, I think.
0: I was just going to ask you. Yeah. So, where does one acquire sodium erythrobate? <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: it's it's very easy to get. Uh, Butcher and packer sells it, and uh, I'm pretty sure the sausage maker sells it. You can probably get it on Amazon too. It's a, my understanding, it's 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 a variant of vitamin C. It's a salt. Ah. Uh,
0: okay. um,
1: it's um it's a byproduct of some something to do with beet production, beet processing.
0: Probably sugar sugar beets.
1: beet, yeah. And um, uh, it's cheap. It's really, you know, it's ve- it's very inexpensive. Uh, so you make a, a a solution of this stuff, and then before you hang your meat, you you give it a bath, just a quick one 2 and um, and and then hang it. Don't dry it off. Just it, it works brilliantly.
0: Before it goes into the handbag, or or after?
1: No, I would. If you if you're using a um a, a porous a bag to hang the meat, then you put the whole thing in. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want so it'll 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 go through the bag, it'll get on the surface of the meat, and 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 you'll be good to go. It works brilliantly.
0: Now, an old German trick that I've that I've learned from old Germans is uh, it's to dunk it in uh, in brandy. Brandy. Yeah, and that I've used that a couple of times, and it's worked.
1: Huh. Well, I mean, I guess brandy has a pretty high alcohol content, um, and it will um it will kill whatever's on there initially, but I can't see it working.
0: I know because it's volatile, right? You know, so it's
1: it's not going to. I don't think it's going to work long term. I mean, it might might be good. I think you.
0: I wonder if I just got lucky,
1: or you just do a good job of keeping your curing box, your aging box clean.
0: I do spritz it down. And the other thing I do is, and this is a difficult thing for most people to do, but I have a season for charcuterie, which is why I'm doing these podcasts now. Oh, and and what I do is I fill the box, yeah, yeah, and then you know, let things happen, and and I try not to have something in there that's been there for six months, and then,
1: you know,
0: so it's also, it's a very helpful thing with humidity, so if everything in there is good at 85, then then you're good, so that seems to help.
1: Yeah, and uh, speaking of uh, white mold, if you're, if you're going to, um, you can buy the,
0: Bacto firm. Yeah, you
1: can buy that mold. Um, I forget the, the uh, retail name, but
0: it's Bactoferm, is not yeah,
1: it? Yeah, Firm is the name of the brand. But
0: oh, that's right. They, yeah, they, you, you, if you if you look them up, they sell all the starter cultures, and there's one that calls like mold culture and some number.
1: Is it 600? Sure. <laughs> I think it might be 600. Something 600. But anyway, you you can buy that white mold. And um, inoculate your meat. Uh, I mean, this is something that you don't usually put on hams, but you put it on salami, you put it on, uh, on braslah. Maybe um, it's not often used for whole muscle cures. Yeah, but, yeah. Um,
0: mine's on. My, I, I I allow it to get on the brassala but not say a uh, you know uh, a hanging ham.
1: Yeah. Again, if you if you're gonna do that, it's best to do it. With a lot of other stuff that you're doing it to, uh, and really crowd the box up with it, so that the box is in effect inoculated with that culture. There's nothing in there. That's the that's the most. The, well, uh,
0: the good culture beats up the bad ones. Uh,
1: Yes, it'll it'll be the dominant species inside the box, and you'll be very m- much less likely to have a a rogue come in and, and get a toehold. Well,
0: that's good. I, I would say let's wrap it up by if you if you're if you're talking to a listener out there yep. who says I really want to get started, but they're they're freaked out a little bit. What are the you know the the, the thirty thousand foot principles they need to remember as they're going through this to put them at ease?
1: Three percent of the weight of the meat by salt. Weigh the meat. Weigh the meat. You don't need to have an insanely accurate scale uh as long as it's accurate to within like 1 or 2 grams uh that's fine but don't go crazy you can get a, a decent scale for 30 bucks um nothing to stress about um any make sure that whatever you cut the meat with is clean sanitize your cutting surface sanitize your knife you don't want to be poking the meat with anything that has bacteria on it And, um, I don't know. I mean, with whole muscle cures, it's kind of hard to screw them up to the point where you get sick. It really is tough. And
0: if, and if it is so bad that you're going to get sick, all of your other senses will be saying, danger, Will Robinson, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's
1: going to, it's going to have, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to stink. It's going to, it's going to be slimy. It's going to be, you know, something you wouldn't want to go near. It's not. You'll know now uh, ironically uh, when when meat starts to spoil, the smell typically is not coming from bacteria that make you sick, but they are they are coming from it is an indication that you're going to get sick because if if the bacteria that stink are growing that well, chances are the other stuff is growing too.
0: <laughs> oh, interesting. so it's like It's sort of the, an olfactory canary in the cold. Uh,
1: yeah, precisely precisely. So trust your trust your nose, and, and and don't don't stress. It's not it's not really that dangerous. So making salami is, is is much more harrowing and fraught with with danger.
0: Yeah, Chris Christian and I went through that a little bit in the last uh, episode. I,
1: I've had salami explode on me.
0: No way, really? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, and it wasn't from anything that uh, that was dangerous. I, I tried making salami with whey. This is when I was working at the dairy and we had a lot of whey. We we're always looking for ways to, to use it. And, uh, I, uh, I just did a small batch and the whey, you know, whatever was in there, grew like crazy, produced a lot of gas and the salamis exploded.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it
1: was. <laughs> and they stunk. Oh my goodness.
0: Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, I mean, I'd, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I really appreciate it, and I'm absolutely going to have you on again, because I, I I love the idea of taking deep dives into bits of meat curing, like I want to do something with Riettes and pâtés oh, and, yeah. and the obligatory bacon episode, which will no doubt be the most popular ever. Uh, and then just, I, I also want to get a bunch of you guys on and do a kind of a roundtable of just... Weird charcuterie projects from near and far, because there's a lot. People are really, really doing some interesting research and, and digging up old things, yeah, yeah. and and we all have a couple of strange ones under our belt. Indeed. Well, thanks a lot. This is Bob Del Grasso, and don't you have a website?
1: Yeah, called A Hunger Artist. I, heard, I haven't posted to it in a very, very long time. Yeah, it's a, a Hunger Artist is my uh, blog.
0: And if people wanted to get in touch with you, how might they do that? Uh,
1: they can friend me on Facebook. I'm there. Um, as Bob Del Grosso. Uh, I'm on Twitter. That's Bob Del Grosso. Uh, they can write to me at BobDelGrosso at gmail.com. Or they can call me at four eight four five seven four seven two two two.
0: 574 7222 Expect
1: a flood of calls. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it.
0: <laughs> well, thanks, man.
1: All right, Hank. Lovely talking to you. Take care.
0: Well, that's our show this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thank you very much for listening to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I really appreciate you listening. And as always, if you like this episode, please leave a review in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you may choose to use. And if you are so inclined, please also subscribe to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast because, again, it helps me out a lot. I will talk with you next week. Bye.